Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. What is the first brand in your life as a young girl that had an impact on you? Probably Nike. My dad was a big runner back when running, you know, the, you know, he would run marathons and we would be kind of taken along uh, on the ride um, and wait at the end and, you know, cheer. Um, I remember he had the kind of one of those original pairs of Nikes that they made on the waffle iron. And that was just a brand, you know, whether it was tennis shoes or cheerleading or whatever that case might be. I mean, it was ubiquitous. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. Today, my guest on the CMO podcast is NASCAR EVP and Chief Marketing Officer, Jill Gregory. Jill has been with this 72-year-old brand since 2007, a pioneer woman in a very male-dominated industry. NASCAR is a monster brand in a multi-billion dollar industry, but it is still a private family business, and we will get into all of that. NASCAR recently made headlines by making the bold decision to ban the Confederate flag in all of NASCAR events, and stood by their only top black driver, Bubba Wallace, in a moving show of solidarity on the track. Today's guest has an incredible memory, is known for her ninja organizational skills, and loves to start her morning making her own coffee and end her day with a beautiful glass of wine. This is my conversation with Jill Gregory. Jill, welcome finally to the CMO podcast. We've been trying to do this for months. I'm so happy we're doing it, and I'm actually very happy we're doing it now. You are one of the longest-running CMOs in the world, and we're going to get into why that is. But first things first, you're a coffee person, and I hear a really, really deep coffee person. So what did you make for yourself this morning? I had a coffee, um, an espresso on my Jura coffee maker, which I received as a gift. I didn't know that you needed all of the accoutrements early on in my coffee life, but um, the strong cup from Jura using real beans, um, that's the ticket. That's the ticket for me. So do you do mail order beans or do you buy beans in a store or do you have a special place locally you go to? So there are a couple of local roasters here um, in mostly in Charleston is one that I go to and everything's mail order these days. Right. You know, yeah, that's so for sure. I, I probably need to, to expand my horizons a little bit. But, um, you know, doing all of the mail order and the home delivery stuff, I've stuck pretty close to the basics. Listen, uh, I want to start off by talking about the times we are in now. You know, you were about the first sports brand, entertainment brand, to start up again after the world shut down in March. You know, you you jumped into e-racing. I think your last live race was March 8th, and you were up starting live racing again, I think, in mid-May. So that is pretty remarkable. You've had 24 races, like 17 more to go. 
It's impressive. So I just want you to tell us about that. How did your team do it? How did you work differently? What leadership lessons did you all learn as you worked in a very different way very quickly? Yeah, Jim, it's such a great question. I think one that every brand, every CMO, every business person you talk to this year is going to have, I think, very similar stories and maybe very different stories. And it'll be such an amazing case study analysis to do once we get through this, if there is an end. Um, I think those are things that we're all looking at today, too. But it was really interesting um, you know, for a brand like ours and for uh, a sport like ours, our core product was not able to be delivered to our consumers, our fans. And so, you know, I know that other brands have been able to adapt and do different delivery mechanisms or different, you know, engagement mechanisms. Our core product, at least as we had traditionally done it for 70 plus years, um, did not exist. So we had to quickly, that was unlike anything that we had ever experienced. And so um, there were a couple of things at play. One, you know, you're at a loss. You've got 2020 plans. You've got KPIs and metrics you're trying to hit. That's all out the window. And you're really looking at how are you going to keep the business afloat and what are you going to do to manage through, you know, unchartered territory in terms of not having your core product available to your core consumers. So um, it was an adjustment. We were one of the last sports to stop racing or to stop competing. Um, I think there was one moment at that um, March weekend where we felt, oh, we can do this. You know, we are unlike other sports. Our our drivers are in cars and helmets and PPE for mm-hmm. us existed every day. Uh, but we very quickly learned that, you know, competing safely and for the safety of our competitors and the community, that wasn't going to be possible. So we had to take a step back immediately and grab the leadership team together and say, OK, what are we going to do now? And at the core of that is what do our fans want? What do our consumers want? And they want NASCAR. We're just going to have to figure out a way to deliver it to them in a different form. So how did your team work differently? Are there any rituals, habits that did you start, you know, daily stand-ups? I mean, you were, I assume you were working remote at the beginning. So what, what, how did you work as a team differently? Yeah, so immediately we had a four o'clock standing call every day. And that was, and as you know, the business, the world was changing so rapidly. You know, you shut down, you've got, you know, different scenarios happening in different markets. Um, you had office shuts down. So obviously we are here in Charlotte. Uh, we've got our main office in Daytona Beach. New York and L.A. are both um, you know, key outposts for us. Everybody was shut down. So you had a few things that needed to be addressed, not just our core product, but our people. And how are they feeling? How are we taking care of them? So the standing call at four o'clock um, on Friday or uh, every day. And then over time, we kind of, we were able to move it to Monday, Wednesday, Friday, which seemed like such a relief at the time. Um, but it was all the key functional leaders of all of the business. So you have a key EVP leadership team at NASCAR, um, but also got all of our business unit leaders together and really talked through what was happening, how it was impacting each piece of the business and where the interdependencies and decisions that need to be made so we don't have unintended consequences of acting to solve one problem that we we're trying to address and creating several others across the organization. 
Now, as part of all that, you've taken a stance, a leadership stance on some social issues and with perhaps your most symbolic act to ban the Confederate flag from your events. So many brands, so many of your colleagues at your client brands all across the world are trying to figure out their purpose, where to be on social issues, where their point of view is, you know, how how vocal they are. So and, you know, obviously your act went was was highly social and went around the world very, very quickly. Can you tell us that story and what others could learn from it? And what led you to that decision? How you feel about it now? Was there anything unexpected that happened? Yeah, I think for 2020, when we look back on it, everybody's going to have a different, you know, um, view of how everything went down and, and what the key learnings were. I think for me personally, um, the actions that we took as a sport, as a leadership team is going to be the um, kind of the shining star. Yes, we got back to racing, hugely important. Obviously, it's our livelihood. Um, but to seize that moment and look at an opportunity to act in a way that maybe wasn't a little bit unexpected for our brand, um, very risky in terms of our fan base, to be quite honest, um, in some cases. Um, and to take that opportunity and seize it, I think for me, as I mentioned, it's going to be one of my proudest moments, if not the proudest moment I've had at NASCAR. But it also was, you know, a, a beacon for the industry and, and for our partners, our brands and everybody else. So I think that because we were one of the first sports back and one of the, the most visible sport back, um, when that weekend, um, kind of following the George Floyd's murder happened and you, there was a lot of, of discussion and uh, feeling of you know, the need to do something to, to showcase our feelings on the position, um, to show that sports should have a role and can have a role in, in, in weighing in on social issues. We had a unique opportunity where we had a national platform, a television broadcast, our drivers, which was really encouraging, raised their hand uh, to say we would like to make our voices known and, and our position known. Uh, so it all really came together as a place where we had a chance to make a very public statement that the leadership team all agreed on. So our uh, president, Steve Phelps, asked us all to come into a room. This is the situation that we have uh, ahead of us is everybody on board with this? And the other gratifying thing is that to a person, everybody was on board. And that was in making a stand um, and then kind of enforcing that with the ban on the Confederate flag. That was a very visible um, act that we could do, but really put the meat behind what we were saying our position was on social justice. This uh, confluence of events that you have been in the middle of, in, in many ways, Bubba Wallace has become a huge face of the sport, you know, uh, what does that mean for the brand? And what did you expect that? Is that something you could have predicted three months ago? Yeah, you know, Bubba has always been a very um, dynamic personality in our sport. Um, that's not, that was pre-2020. Um, but what I think we have seen as an industry, uh, we knew he had passion, we knew he had commitment. But what I think the general public has seen is an athlete that's really found their voice and found the ability to provide an opinion, provide a point of view and not be afraid. Um, you know, in our sport, there are a lot of different 
um, kind of forces at work, there's sponsorship and, you know, scheduling and, you know, the need to perform um, all kind of influence what, you know, particularly what a driver can say. And so to have the ability and the confidence to take a stand in social justice and then to put himself out there on, you know, every media opportunity, morning show, evening show, um, and articulate how he really felt. I've been so proud. And, and the reason I believe that it has worked is that in every scenario, even when I could tell he's tired and he's feeling a little afraid, it was authentic. This is what he really believed. And whatever, however he said it in whatever given interview, it was very clear that on to, that authenticity and truth came out. And I think that's what's resonated with kind of the general public, sponsors, media partners, you name it. Um, you've seen a driver kind of grow up and, and mature into this spokesperson kind of before your eyes. And it's been really interesting to see. Well, 2020 has been the most unusual year for all of us in our careers, I believe. But I want to take us back to 2007 when you came to NASCAR as CMO. So that's 13 years ago. I was still at P&G. So, uh, and I, it's, I want to, our business is so dynamic. I want you to reflect a little bit about the biggest non-obvious changes you have seen since coming to NASCAR in 2007 in four areas. And the first one is, and this is a little bit of a lightning round. We'll get to a bigger one at the end of the podcast. So fans and consumers, what's the biggest non-obvious change in the last 13 years? You know, I think the the customizing of, of the content and the fan making the decision on what they want, when they want it, what platform they want it on. And so when I started my career here, um, NASCAR was appointment viewing, and that was a good thing at the time. Um, you know, you come, you know, our fans um, in the South and other places come home from church, have a nice supper, and watch the NASCAR race. And it was a four-hour block, and we ran our commercials, our promotions, and I wasn't CMO at the time, obviously, but um, we had a formula. And this is, if we wanted fans to see us, then they had to come to where we are at the time that we were there. Um, that You take every single thing about what I just said and go 180 degrees, because we cannot expect a fan to come see us and find us, we need to be in front of them in every form, in every platform, in every piece of content, um, places we don't even think that they want us to be, we need to be. And that's top of mind, you know, awareness for any brand right now. There's so much customization of what a fan or consumer wants. And for us, if we're not figuring out ways to insert ourselves into every piece of a fan's psyche or a fan's choice, then we're missing opportunities. And that's been, I think, the biggest transformation for us. And I think for every brand. I want to go down that a little bit more while we're on that topic. How did you lead the transformation of your marketing capabilities to do that 180? Every CMO is trying to build capabilities for the future and anticipate what they have to build. You've done a pretty good job of doing that. How did you do it? Yeah, I think, Jim, the, the biggest thing I would say, and it's a great question because I've never had to necessarily articulate it this way, which is why um, your content is so compelling, is, you know, 
rather than small tweaks, hey, you know, we're doing 21 planning and we need to slightly tweak the 20 plan. I think what we had to do was wash everything away and start from scratch. So instead of being an advertising focused um, marketing department, we needed to be content first. And that, that's not unique to us, but we had longstanding big agency relationships that were very formulaic and had worked well. Um, you know, we had institutional inventory, the 32nd spots, everything, um, our marketing assets available to us were pretty formulaic. We had to take all of that and basically throw it away and start from scratch. If we are going to put NASCAR into places where fans don't expect us to be, we're going to have to do it in a different way with different people, with a different brand message. And so I think the biggest change was rather than small tweaks year over year to a business plan, it's clean sheet of paper. What are we trying to achieve? And then what are the tools that we need? Um, and it, it was a revamp of the folks that we have internally, the partners that we had externally, um, and then how we engaged with our media partners primarily, but just even partners overall and had them come along on the ride with us. So Joe, we just talked about the change in fans and consumers and the capabilities that you're building. Now, what's the biggest non-obvious change you've seen in this big world of marketing and branding? Um, you know, I think that a little bit to riff off of what we talked about before, it's, you know, this idea of not just for us, but the consumer choice and the, um, the options that are available and trying to break through the clutter and, you know, taking a bet on the new platform, the new messaging, the new um, you know, way to reach a consumer. If you're not willing to adapt and be flexible and kind of challenge the status quo, um, then you're not going to be able to be competitive. And I think that we were able to do that um, earlier on. And then that kind of mindset has led us to, I think, maybe the ability to be a little more nimble on 2020 when it came about um, since we had done that kind of over the past several years. Do you do that largely internally? There's this big debate about what you should do inside versus outside the company. You have to move very fast. Your content has to be authentic to you. So have you built, built more muscles inside to do that at the speed you need to? We have. In fact, we, um, so kind of early on uh, several years ago, even NASCAR.com and our digital offerings were outsourced and, and that was the right model at the time. Um, but very quickly, you know, in this new world of content and staying relevant, if you didn't control your own destiny, then that was going to be very hard um, to do. So we've built the muscle inside. We've got content creators um, that are constantly challenging, you know, what we're providing to the fans in terms of functionality and ways to connect and, you know, things like, um, the ability to take a NASCAR race on the go with you, watch it on your phone, listen to driver and crew chief chatter, real-time stats. Um, those were all things that you'd have to be sitting down in front of a television or um, a computer screen. And now if those things aren't on the go and a bit able to be adapted to someone that's never going to sit in front of a television again, perhaps, um, then they're missing the boat. And we do a lot of that development here from a social standpoint. All of the content creation is done here internally. And so it's been different, obviously, with um, 
the virtual nature of what we do. No one's going to races. So we are racing um, and there are cars going around the track. But in order to maintain protocols and safety, we're not sending our content creators out on the road. So they're now even more challenged to say, how do I bring the excitement of NASCAR racing to the fan when I'm not there to collect it. And so I think that the team here has done an amazing job and, you know, curating uh, different content for the different platforms. You know, those are table stakes right now for, uh, for any brand, but um, to do it under the guise of also not being able to interact with your core product is added a little bit of level of complexity, but uh, the team here is great. We've got a, um, a digital and social content team, um, that is constantly thinking of new ways to bring the fans closer. What's the biggest change over the last 13 years in NASCAR? You know, I think it's kind of the progressive nature of our sport. And I obviously the most visible component of that is, is what we talked about earlier with, you know, the a position on social justice and a bold move to, to ban the Confederate flag and, and make our sport open and more welcoming. Um, that wasn't always the case. We were a, a traditional sport, a lot of heritage, um, you know, some misconceptions, but overall fairly conservative. Um, and to think that if it's July in 2020 to say that NASCAR was the first sport back, the first sport back with fans during the pandemic, and also took kind of a groundbreaking position on social justice and Black Lives Matter, I think that would probably be something that that wouldn't have come to mind uh, to have NASCAR be the brand that you would be talking about. So that only comes with progressive leadership and the ability to have an opinion and articulate positions like this and then deliver on them. So I think the the overall growth of our leadership and the willingness to challenge ourselves and, you know, put ourselves out there, I think has been the most, you know, dynamic change in the 13 years. We did some really great work early on, but what we're doing now in a shorter period of time um, and the progressive nature of the approach that we're taking is something that is maybe unexpected, but really gratifying for me. The biggest non-obvious change over the last 13 years in you, in Joe Gregory? Oh, the non-obvious change. Yeah, the obvious changes are all there as we all get <laughs> a little bit older, right? I'm with you. I think the fact that, you know, um, I'm still at NASCAR, you know, and you've mentioned it several times. Um, the, I guess comfort level in being here and really being able to affect change and see it come to fruition and the satisfaction I get from that. Maybe not obvious to others. I'm still, uh, we're, we're, as a team, very driven, very results oriented, but kind of settling into the, um, the comfort and, and the satisfaction you can take in, you know, really driving significant change and, and feeling good and confident. That might be an inside uh, Jill thing that we're talking about, but it, it gives me a lot, a good foundation to continue to try more things that are externally facing. Cause I feel very confident in the position that we're in and the results that we're, we've been able to drive. You're 13 years in this job, which we said 10 times already, and maybe a record. And I want you to tell us 
how you've done that, how you've bucked the trend. I think the average tenure of a CMO is still not even four years, somewhere between three and a half and four years. So you're blowing that out of the water. What is it about you and what you do and how your relationship is with your lead team? So what lessons could other CMOs learn in building tenure at a, at a brand that is not easy, right? You, you've had some challenges, you've had ups and downs, you're trending nicely now. So tell us how you've done that. Yeah, I think that, you know, Jim, it's interesting, you know, one of the topics du jour, maybe pre-pandemic or even post-pandemic, is all the articles that you see on the changing role of the CMO and what the CMO needs to do to adapt and, you know, some really good thinking out there. Um, But I would say maybe the secret is that the CMO role here is already a little bit more non-traditional. So, um, you know, of a five-person executive leadership team at NASCAR, I am a core member of that team. So the CMO role marketing is not seen as a necessary evil or, um, you know, at, at odds with the sales group or maybe some of the traditional uh, knocks on the role of the CMO. Um, marketing and as, you know, the wide purview that, that marketing has here is integral in every single decision that gets made. We're using marketing and and research and insights to drive competition decisions. We are, you know, at the forefront of social issues. We've added a corporate and social responsibility group under marketing. So I think that part of the secret is that maybe it's a little mischaracterized on marketing is not in a silo that you might expect. It's really um, a core tenant and really drives and informs many of the other decisions that are made um, at the company. So you know, I think in a more traditional role, it would be harder to say that and, and you might have a more transition in this role. But given the importance that leadership or the board um has placed in marketing that has, um, I guess, led to a longer runway to be able to affect change and have marketing not be, you know, just one group of many, but really a a key driver of the decision-making process in the future of the company. So it's clear, I mean, it's clear from the research that in companies where marketing is seen as mission critical, the CMOs tend to last longer. The ones that are accountable sit with the top team, and you're certainly in a situation like that. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMO succeed, Visit cmo.deloitte.com. Could you, uh, you know, pull the curtain back a little bit on what you do? Our, our listeners are endlessly interested in how you spend your time as, as, as how senior leaders spend their time. Everyone's a bit different. But tell us about your work. If you had to put it into a pie chart, what would it be? What do you spend the most time on? What are your KPIs? So tell us a little bit about your life, Jill, at work. Yeah. And I think that, you know, maybe everything's peak pre-COVID, post-COVID, or mm-hmm. everything's just going to be mixed together. But I think regardless of where we are on, on 2020, the relationships and the people are probably the biggest part of the pie chart. So whether that's internally here and 
making sure you have the right team, empowering them to do what they need to do, but also leading and, and shepherding them along is huge for our business in particular. You know, NASCAR is a little bit different than a traditional sports league or a stick and ball league in that, you know, we have a collection of alliances, but we don't own the teams. We don't dictate what the drivers can do. Um, until recently, we didn't own the facilities. And so a lot of what we do pushing marketing or content or communications agendas throughout the industry is negotiation, collaboration, getting people on board with your vision, understanding their role in driving the sport. Uh, so the people piece of the pie is is pretty critical um, because there's a lot of consensus building. And even if I know or I believe that, you know, doing a piece of content or a reality show or a, a Netflix special um, is the right thing to do. It's going to take me a long time to get all of the stakeholders, one, engaged and believing it, and then two, the deal points to get everybody to get what they want. So I think in a different league structure, you know, a commissioner can say, we're doing this, and the 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 players, mm -hmm. uh, the teams are all part of this, you know, uh, of a whole. So the relationships internally, obviously, everybody has that and, and hugely critical having the right people. But externally, that takes a lot of time. And, and that's not a, a negative or a positive. It just that's just the way that our, our industry is structured. I think from a KPI standpoint, one of the best things we had done over the past couple of years is really um, went to, for lack of a better term, a back-to-basic strategy as it relates to KPIs. Are we driving eyeballs or butts in seats? Um, so you talked about kind of the variability in metrics for NASCAR over the past couple of years, and we had had um, you know, a year or two that things were going in the absolute wrong direction. And if we didn't change course, um, we weren't going to be able to survive, not just, you know, the marketing team, the sport itself, you know, staying competitive in the sports landscape, we needed to do, to do something different. So, um, you know, we were doing a lot of, of really good, interesting programs, fan outreach and, and building community involvement and growth segments, marketing, all very important initiatives. We needed to go and get more people watching on television, engaging with our content on digital and social and going to races. If we did that, the rest of it was going to take care of itself. But that was a fundamental shift that we made around the middle part of 2018 that we spent the entire year last year butts in seat eyeballs and, and butts in seats. And the back to basics approach really allowed everybody to focus. And when you're not trying to deliver against 14 metrics and you're trying to deliver against four or five, um, still daunting, but it really allowed us to simplify what we did. Um, and it gave direction to the team and the industry too. So I think that um, the pie chart now from a KPI standpoint are those kind of core metrics. Mm -hmm. How many people are coming to races? Is that up or down? What are we doing? Are we doing the right things to bring them to the race? And then how many people right now, the biggest um, metric out there for all of the sports leagues is television. That's obviously shifted over time and is starting to blend. Um, but until there's a, a different model, you know, those uh, television engagement and the folks that uh, see our broadcasts and, and see something about NASCAR that's intriguing to them, we've got to focus on that. So um, I think between the people and the hard metrics, 
Um, those are are the top. Um, mm-hmm. But the also for every CMO or I think every every marketer, you've also got to have your eye on what everybody else is doing and what is the new um, innovation or what are the new places that you need to put yourself. Because if you're too tunnel vision on exactly what you have to deliver in terms of your own KPIs, you're going to get behind in some areas that you might want to challenge your team to innovate. So you know, there's that sliver of the pie chart that's like, okay, we also need to you know make make sure we're keeping our eyes open. Um, on new opportunities and the chance to innovate. And maybe it would be something that is we haven't tried before. If it's going to drive a metric or get your team energized or your industry energized, then it's something we need to be looking at. Is there a brand or, uh, I don't know, entity of any kind that's inspiring to you, that's in a category that's kind of relevant to you, adjacent to you? I mean, where, where have you found inspiration as you sort of look outside yeah, you know, we have so many big brands that are associated with us. So the, the you know, the politically correct answer would be one of our big partners. Um, and, I, and I think that we do have um, a lot of those, which I'll talk about in a minute. I think growing up for me, I played sports. I played tennis. Um, Nike was always, you know, probably the first brand that was very prevalent when you became brand conscious as maybe a young tennis player in California, for instance. Um But I think what was about that and and what is still true today is that authenticity and the message and whatever you see from a brand, that it's consistent and it feels natural. Um, And so that's the inspiration I take. Brands that, you know, I'll use one of our partners with Anheuser-Busch, you know, core brand, Bush Beer, um, those are race fans, authentic, hardworking um, you don't see that brand, even while they try to be irreverent and a little bit more fun, you don't see them deviate from what you would expect from Anheuser-Busch. The same with Coca-Cola. So I think from when I look at different brands and what they're doing, I say, are they innovating, but are they also doing it in a way that is not a departure from kind of your intuitive feeling of where that brand should be? And so we've got partners doing it, and I hope we're doing it because one of the things that we have to do while we try to innovate and put ourselves in front of new fans and new platforms is keep the core of what makes fans attracted to NASCAR, passion, speed, excitement, danger, uh, but do it in a way that doesn't go against kind of what your traditional family values are. And it's a balance because if you try, and I think we were a little bit a victim of this um, several years ago, if you tried too hard to go attract that new fan and you deviate from your core, either your core brand attributes or your core fans, you can get burned by that. And that's happened to us in the past. Yeah. When I think about the KPIs you just shared and how you're inspired, you know, it's I expect you've had to have even more fan or centricity, or as we would say at PNG, consumer centricity than ever before. Because when you're talking about being more relevant, having them engage with your brand, watch television, engage in all their platforms, you'd have to double down on your insights. So can you share anything about what you've done internally to be even more fan-centric and translate that into actions? Yeah, so we um, you know, really bolstered just from a very kind of nerdy tactical standpoint. And, you know, Our analytics and insights team used to be you know, the guy that crunched the numbers from Nielsen when they came in and how did we do week over week. And now we have a 10 person team that is obviously doing the day to day metrics of consumption. 
Um, but it's engagement, it's, you know, brand sentiment, it's segmentation, it's, you know, this, we're in the middle of right now, the, a really deep dive of our fans, who they are today, but what's the fan of the future going to look like? In five years, how is that fan going to change? What defines their fandom? How is that changing? And we're listening to them. So we have a, a 25 to 30,000 uh, member fan council that we talk to each and every week after every race. Um, that's been in existence for a while, but I think the biggest change is instead of asking them, hey, what'd you think of the race? Oh, I was happy because Kyle Bush won. Um, actually, they're mostly unhappy. Um, <laughs> it's more, how does it make you feel? What's going to make you consume more? If you only went to one race last year, what would make you go to two? And so how do you take them along the journey with you. And then the other thing that we're working on right now, we started last year and just refining it is, you know, of those segments of fans, and obviously like any consumer, we've got a continuum of fans that are very hardcore and they're always going to love what we do, even if they complain about it to a very casual fan that's got general awareness. Where's the biggest opportunity for us? And, and what we've found is, um, when you really dive into it, there's a curiosity about the family and community aspect of NASCAR, the event experience itself. Um, there's a general curiosity about NASCAR from a younger fan base. So what it's really allowed us to do is take a slightly different marketing approach to bring those new fans in and then get them to stick with us. So, um, you know, let's showcase and educate a fan base that is maybe a little bit less informed, give them a reason to care and then continue to bring them along. And I think that what has happened over the course of the last couple of months with our social positions is that we're seeing that curiosity segment of the fan base grow. There's a lot more fans out there raising their hands saying, hey, I want to know more about this. I'm going to give NASCAR some consideration. So our biggest challenge right now is translating that interest into action and bringing them along with us. So we're having that decision or those discussions with those fans drive all of the future decisions. So um, we take it straight from them. We know somewhat know what's going to work from a core fan standpoint, give them more of what they love, but let's introduce some things that folks might not know about NASCAR and, and get them to, to come with us a little bit more than they have in the past. I want to get into your career in a moment, but first, I think you have a unique perspective on how to keep a hot and trendy brand hot and trendy, right? You're a 72-year-old brand. For a lot of your history, growing like crazy. When, when I was at P&G as a younger brand person and up through the ranks and as CMO, we had a strong relationship with NASCAR. Numbers were amazing. Uh, and you had a I mean, just you're you're uh, you're on a good run now, but it's really hard to keep a brand on top of their game over decades, and every brand has its ups and downs. So you've had a unique window into this. What would be, you know, one piece of advice, or one watch out, or one encouragement to others who have a brand that is trending? How to be sure it doesn't come off that trend? It's really hard. It is. And I think that, you know, this theme that we've had throughout our conversation is, you know, continuing to challenge yourself. So when the growth trajectory is is going high up the charts, uh, you know, you're everybody's darling, 
Um, you know, there's movies being made about you. Um, still better challenge yourself on what's to come. And I think that, you know, and this probably isn't unique to us. It's my personal experiences. You know, you get too high with the high, um, then you're not anticipating what's around the next corner. And I think that there's probably a little bit of that, um, you know, and then if you're low and you're thinking, okay, you know, this isn't working and, you know, are we ever going to resonate and, and how can we, um, you know, do things differently? It's just continuing to try to see around that next corner, because if you're too complacent, either with the highs or the lows, you're just going to kind of, I believe, keep going on that on an up and down roller coaster. So I think for us, when we thought we saw things were trending in the wrong direction, it was we better act quickly and make some decisions now um, and use data and insights, not, hey, everyone's personal opinion or, or you know, um, you know, here's what I think we should do. We went straight to the data. What should we do more of? And anything we're not doing that doesn't drive what we're trying to achieve, get rid of it. And I think for many years, we were trying to be everything to everybody um, and recapture uh, some unseen you know, magic that, that the perception one has gone. What had actually happened is the entire business is changing. The sports landscape's changing. Entertainment's changing. And the way that you and I consume, take NASCAR out of it television, programming, entertainment, you know, Netflix didn't exist or Hulu or, um, so I think that if we're going to be honest with the, with ourselves, we, yes, we were doing some things that we needed to write the course on. We were also dealing with a changing fan behavior, um, module that, you know, was affecting that as well. So I think being more proactive about finding the root of the problem and, and acting on it was, really important for us. And we have to do that. If we're on the upswing, um, as, as some people say now, we better not rest on our laurels because, you know, great. Well, then what did you do for me? What have you done for me lately? We better be thinking about how we're going to keep that or try something new so we don't get back into uh, a dip. Great advice, Jill. And now I want to flip back to your college days. We're going to jump back in time. <laughs> you studied journalism at Cal Poly. You were a tennis player. You wound your way in your career through marketing service roles at an energy company after that. You did some experiential marketing with an agency, then telecom, then banking, and now to NASCAR. So actually, as you look at how marketing has evolved, that actually might be a pretty, pretty good career path. So I want you to tell our listeners, what has guided you along this diverse career path? Is it following... Uh, I don't know, a leader or curiosity or what was in your mind as you made those changes in very, very different jobs and industries? Yeah, I think it's actually um, kind of an interesting way to look at it. I don't know that we look at it, you know, it's nice to take a step back, I guess, at your career and say, okay, that path looks fairly interesting. I'm so glad I planned it that way. Um, when you're in it, there's no plan at all, I guess, for very, maybe for some people. But I think for, for those of us that um, like challenges, like, you know, new, um, you know, putting themselves in new and challenging positions, there's not a linear path. And I think that, you know, for marketers, I think, you know, a linear path um, 
if that's what you're looking for, then for me, I could have stayed at Bank of America for your whole career. You know exactly how that's going to go. Um, so I think that um, the piece of advice or, or how you would really characterize it is, are you able to affect change? This is my my opinion, you know, I've been able to affect change. Are you challenged, energized by the people or the industry that you're working in? Um, and can you make a difference? And and sometimes those things are more obvious than others. And sometimes they're not obvious at all. And you're, you have the job in front of you. Um, but as I've evaluated new opportunities, and as you mentioned, kind of a varied background, each opportunity that was presented to me, I tried to look at in a way that is, was was it going to be different, challenging, allow me to use my skill and, um, and affect change and, and make a difference and, you know, make a difference in the days of, of 2020 and, and social justice maybe is a little more obvious. But even as you're, you know, making differences in your own marketing team or with the brand that you're working on, I think, um, you know, the ability to use your intellect, your personality and, and your skills to um, affect change has been always something that was a, and I don't know if it was a guiding light at the time, but as I look back, I feel like I can say, okay, this is why I took that position because I realized there was a person there um, that could challenge me or a brand situation or a business opportunity. And um, But sometimes it's not always as obvious at the time and, and you're just trying to get through it. As you look at that career, is, is there one experience that is most defining, a kind of a crucible experience? And is there one mentor who has been highly influential to you? Yeah, I think the, um, you know, before 2020, I think that as we talked about before, there's been a lot of kind of crucible type experiences in 20 where we've all been tested, right? And your ability to, um, withstand or, or adapt to what's happening has, has been, I think, the biggest test for all of us. But I think that there was kind of a midpoint um, position in my career here at NASCAR um, where, to me, there was a almost a tipping point. Like, are we going to kind of stay the course and do uh, what has been expected and, and kind of, you know, march to a methodical you know, place in, in the sports world and, you know, kind of accept that, or were we going to do something bold and, and more different? Um, and that came with leadership through um, the board, the family that owns and is taking the leadership role in NASCAR today and the current president, Steve Phelps, there's a time when it was very clear that if I continued in this role, that this could be really meaningful change that I would be able to affect. I didn't have any imagination that it would be what happened um, earlier uh, last month, but I could tell that there was a real momentum to turn this thing upside down or to challenge ourselves to, to be better and do things that are unexpected. So, um, you know, I think that there's always, for me, there's been a time when you're in the middle of a career that, um, you're like, okay, is it time to look? Is it time to change? You know, what is the, you take stock of what's around you. Um, and it's always comes back to me, the people, and am I going to be, you know, challenged and required to do more? You know, I think that if many of us, if not all of these folks that you interview, um, 
we're here for a reason. We're go-getters. We want to make change. We've got ideas and, and enthusiasm and energy. And if that energy is going to be recognized and rewarded, that's a place that I want to be. And there's been a, there was a kind of a midpoint time at my time here at NASCAR where I could see that that energy was going to be rewarded and I wanted to see what I could do with it. Yeah. You mentioned, uh, you know, it's a family company as, essentially, and you've worked for big, big pub- public companies like Bank of America and Texaco, and you're working for a family company now. What's the greatest difference? Is it speed, accountability, care, sense of ownership? What do you, what do you think it is? Yes, all of the above. I all think the that above. there's a cliche, um, or I think maybe some people think it's a cliche, that NASCAR is like a family. You know, in a normal year, we travel together 38 weekends a year. The season goes from Valentine's Day to Thanksgiving, for lack of a better term. We always use that to, for shock value. Um, but you are together in a fairly tight-knit industry. And I think there is a care. There is a component of um, a sense of family, a sense of tradition. The trick is to not make that feel stifling, right? You want to have that. But if it comes with, you know, lack of innovation or kind of inability to change, then you turn that, that positive into a negative. So I think that what's been nice here recently is that, and for many, uh, for the last couple of years, um, you get the best of both worlds. You get the feeling of, you know, this is an employer or um, a company that really cares about their employees and and how to take, um, you know, good stock of where those people are. But being careful and thoughtful does not have to mean that you're stagnant and kind of stuck in your ways. And I think that if you strike that right balance, then you're going to get the best of both worlds. Big companies, I think there are a ton of benefits to that too. You've worked at P&G. There are some great things about working at Bank of America, structure and resources and, and you know, um, programs that are offered to employees for growth and um, many, many good things, um, but you can also get lost and your ability to affect change may not feel as obvious sometimes. There's a process and a machine that is harder, I think, to be um, more than a meaningful cog in sometimes. But here at a company like ours, um, you do get the the care and the um, kind of the comfort and security of a, of a smaller company that um, is family owned, but you better drive results and you better be delivering, you know, against the KPIs because we are in a success business and we all have performance. We're in a performance business and, um, you know, it's a good, I guess, um, balance of, you know, feeling good and and, um, confident in the company you work for, but also having the ability to drive change and requiring change from your colleagues. Hey, listen, I want to, I carved out extra time in this podcast for our lightning round because there's so many interesting things to bring up to get your perspective on, Jill. So I'm going to jump into the lightning round and, and it's going to be a variety of fun and thoughtful questions about you and about leadership. And the first question is, are you a slower or faster driver since working at NASCAR? Uh, faster. Faster. I would expect that. <laughs> so what driver has been your closest advisor? 
a NASCAR driver. Mm-hmm. I would say that I had a strong relationship with Tony Stewart when he was racing. Um, I would say Jimmy Johnson right now. Yeah. What's the biggest misconception about NASCAR among the general public? Uh, it's just all about driving around in circles and it's a, a Southern redneck sport. Couldn't be more further from the truth. What is your greatest gift as a leader? Um, empathy. Making sure you- that, that um, I can relate to my employees, give them the tools that they need, but understand kind of where they're coming from and, and respect their point of view. What are you still working on? Patience. So that was an easy one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Came very quickly to you. Very, very much so. Um, getting better at times, but, you know, definitely know that's an area. So what are you reading now? Anything that's interesting, inspiring for you? You know, I've been um, trying to read a few classics that I had let kind of go by the wayside. Um, there was a the book that I think won the Pulitzer Prize a few years ago, The Goldfinch, that I had never read. I'm right in the middle of it right now. And I have to really train myself. I'm the type that will just stay up way too late to finish a book. So I'm trying to... to um, monitor myself. But, you know, I think at the beginning of the pandemic, to be honest, I, there were a lot of books. I'm like, okay, this is going to be my chance to really get caught up. And um, that never materialized because I think all of us evolved very quickly to um, working in our homes and being even more busy and a little more frazzled than we even were when we yeah. were in the office every day. So haven't quite made the dent that I want to, but I'm looking forward to finishing the book I'm on right now. So in ter- listening, podcasts or series that you're watching, anything come to mind? Yeah, I've been doing, um, obviously, a lot of different podcasts. Yours, um, yeah, I know you know Nadine Dietz. That I've, just hearing peers, I mean, we're losing, you know, these conferences that we all go to. Um, you know, maybe curriculum-wise, they're not always exactly what you need, but you do have a chance to talk to each other. And there's this camaraderie and social engagement that I think we're all missing. To me, the podcasts that I hear are the closest thing to that. So if I can listen to you and your podcast with Erica Nardini, who I would normally be seeing in some sort of business relationship, kind of make, okay, that's where she, where her head is, or Stephanie McMahon, or, you know, we've been able to, I've been able to stay connected, just listening to people talk. I think that's been really helpful. Um, you know, I don't know how much more us marketers can go without these social interactions. Cause I think that some of that's what makes us successful and make us tick. Um, but until then we'll keep doing the podcast cause I think it's the next best thing. Yeah. And uh, Nadine Deeds does a podcast called CMO Moves for our listeners. Also a great, great way to learn about what makes CMOs tick and learn about amazing people. Uh, Tell me a habit that you've picked up during this pandemic that you want to maintain whenever we come out of this someday, sometime. So I had already had a Peloton bike, but I have had a habit of just getting up and doing it early in the morning, which is my preferred workout time. But when you're trying to make 7 a.m. breakfast meetings and jumping on on planes, the frequency of that was a little more sporadic. So I've done a a nice job of getting that early morning workout. And even if it's a 15 or 20 minute class, having the discipline to do that, 
and not having to go four or five days without doing it because of the office schedule, I really could get used to that. We are going to have the Peloton CMO on the program, and this will be an interesting time, right? They're trending like crazy. They can't meet demand. You order a bike and it's months. So talking to her about how do you keep that momentum? So it's going to be a really good interview, and I can't wait to hear what she has to say. I can't wait either. I think that would be fantastic. As a user, I mean, you always want to interact with the brands uh, or hear from the brands that you interact with. That's going to be fascinating because there'll be some point where it evens out. And again, like us, how do you adjust to that you know, adjust when you know that's going to happen and what, what has to change from what you're doing right now. Looking forward to it. If you were not running marketing at NASCAR, what would you be doing? I would like to be running a winery in the Napa or Sonoma Valley. Oh, I didn't know you were a wine person. So last question, I promise. Who else would you like to hear on the CMO podcast? We're going to have Peloton. Anyone else that would be interesting and helpful for you? You know, I've got a colleague that I'm working pretty closely with right now, um, Jenny Storms at NBC Sports. Um, You know, I think that we're only one of of her partnerships, but I think that all the sports are coming back at the same time. Um, And then you had one of your primary um, sports in the Olympics that, you know, you work all this time to put on and it's not happening at all. And, you know, I've been able to just chat with her briefly because none of us have much time. But I think that would be an interesting dynamic, how they are managing through that. I know how it is kind of in their interactions with us, but NHL is going to five games in five days and uh, five games a day for five days. And there's just this glut. There was nothing. And then there's this glut. So I think that could be an interesting conversation. If the fall happens as it's planned, it's going to be, as a sports fan, which I am, it's going to be crazy. I'm not quite sure how I'm going to navigate it. Right. And I mean, you know, you're going to have to be very thoughtful about what you try to do. And so us, for each of the sports leagues, how we break through all of that, um, it's going to be interesting. And and the way you deliver it for us, you know, we were doing midweek races and is that the way the fans want it? It's what we can do. Mm. Um, doesn't mean it's right, you know, you know, however, um, you know, condensing the season that used to take, um, you know, six months into three months, do fans want that? Are they going to, you know, is the demand going to kind of ebb as after everybody comes back? I think the, the future behavior of the sports fan for all of us is something we've got to be completely on top of because we're, they've learned a new way to do everything. And sports is, is part of that. That's a good note to end on. Thanks, Jill. I really appreciate it. You're very generous. It was a wonderful chat. Thank you, Jim. Appreciate you having me on. That was my conversation with Jill Gregory. I loved how she spoke about the decision to ban Confederate flags at NASCAR events. She spoke about that so sincerely, so authentically, and how that decision galvanized their leadership team and how it took courage, but it was unanimous. I also loved how she talked about how she makes career changes. She looks for how she can affect change, Is it challenging? And can she make a difference? And off the microphone, she promised my producer, Matt, and I, we could get in a NASCAR car and take a drive. Can't wait for that. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. 
And I would be super happy if you subscribe so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.